Okay, welcome back to the Understanding Childhood Cancer podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff, and today we're going to talk about a particular tumour type that we see in children called rhabdomyosarcoma. Big long name, rhabdomyosarcoma. It's very much a tumour, a cancer that occurs in children. It does occur in adults, but it's really something we see in uh, children in particular. The complicated name, it's a complicated tumour. It's complicated as a tumour because it can occur in all sorts of different locations of the body. And there's a few different types of rhabdomyosarcoma when you look at it with the microscope. And then you have to determine, of course, whether the tumour is localised just in one place or whether it's spread elsewhere in the body. And it all gets very complicated when you factor all of these different things in together. And I'm going to take you through all of this, so bear with me as we plough through quite a lot of detail. Don't try to rush to the bit that you think you're more interested in because I think I'm going to cover most of it. And uh, if you just uh, sit right through everything, you'll, you'll, you'll probably hear it all. Anyway, first, why don't we talk about that name that the tumour has, rhabdomyosarcoma. Okay, sarcoma at the end. That means cancer, but sarcomas in particular are a different family of cancers to the usual ones you see in adults, you know, like breast cancer and bowel cancer and uh, lung cancer. They're what you call carcinomas. It's a complicated pathology term, and it's probably not worth dwelling on too much. But anyway, the sarcomas are tumours of different things, things like muscles and bones and ligaments and fat and tendons and and those sorts of things. And then there's some sarcomas that look like the other sarcomas, but we don't even really know what they've arisen from, like what uh, normal structure in the body has become cancerous to cause them. So they're the sarcomas. I mean, I guess if you think about it, if you just looked at a leg, a whole leg, and, and thought, well, what could go wrong in a leg? In, in the way of cancer, uh, most of the tumours you could imagine there would be sarcomas, bones, muscles, ligaments, fat, etc. Okay, so rhabdomyosarcoma is in this family of sarcomas. What about the rhabdomyo bit? Well, myo means muscle, and rhabdomyo means muscle of the sort, the, your regular muscles, the muscles in your arms and your legs. Uh, you know, the body has actually three types of muscle. It has normal muscles, you know, in your arms and legs. And then it has uh, muscle like your heart muscle, so cardiac muscle. And then there's something called smooth muscle. And smooth muscle is that stuff in your intestines and uterus and body parts like that that need a bit of muscle to make things squirm along in the right direction. But no, rhabdomyo refers to our, the normal muscles in our arms and our legs, the things we think of as muscles. So rhabdomyosarcoma is sort of a tumour of muscle. Now I say it's sort of a tumour of muscle because it's not as simple as that because rhabdomyosarcomas often emerge in an area where there's no muscles. So, um, for instance, in the prostate gland, um, adult and old men, they get prostate cancer of a different type. But children can get a rhabdomyosarcoma of the prostate gland, even though there's no muscle really in the prostate gland. So it's all a bit complicated. I think it might be easier to understand it if you think of it as uh, a tumour of muscle stem cells. So, you know, we have... These are cells in our muscles called satellite cells, and they're, they're what you call muscle stem cells. They, uh, they don't work as muscle cells, but they more produce the muscle cells, uh, satellite cells. Now, I, we're not even really sure of this, but if you think of a rhabdomyosarcoma as a tumour of satellite cells or of muscle stem cells, then it might make a bit more sense. The, the other thing to know is you've got to think back to before we're even born, okay, in those first few weeks of life uh, in, in the uterus after conception. Remember, we're going from one cell to two cell to eight cell, you know, etc. And as the embryo forms, 
the the cells are migrating all over the place and moving into position and the heart moves into position and the muscle cells move into position and there's cells moving all over the place according to some sort of complicated rules that that are that are in place anyway as the embryo forms and the fetus forms and then the human being born the there are obviously going to be cells left behind in certain places and you know my theory is that some of these cells that are left behind are muscle stem cells and some of them can become cancerous and so then you can end up with a muscle tumor forming where there's no muscles uh, now that's my complicated and fanciful explanation of it i don't know if it's entirely true but it's one way to think of why you would get muscle tumors forming where there's no muscles so that's so that's rhabdomyosarcoma explained as a name. It's, it, its name suggests that it's a tumour of a muscle, but it's more a tumour of a muscle stem cell, I think. Okay, now where do these tumours occur? That's the next question. Well, they occur in all sorts of different places throughout the body. Uh, they occur in the head and neck region, and the head and neck includes uh, the face, the ear... I mean, deep inside the ear, the middle ear, the sinuses, the nasopharynx, you know, that's a thing at the back of your nose, and they can occur in the neck. A particular site in the head and neck is the orbit. The orbit is behind the eyeball, I guess. So where you have your eye muscles behind the eyeball, there's an area in there, and tumours can develop there, and called an orbital rhabdomyosarcoma. Next site to mention tumours can arise from the urinary bladder and prostate gland, uh, the prostate gland in boys, but the urinary bladder in both, uh, both sexes. They can also occur in other organs near the bladder and prostate, things like the uterus and the vagina and, and in the testicular region. They're called genitourinary sites, non-bladder prostate. It gets complicated. Rhabdomyosarcomas can occur in what we call the extremities. The extremities are basically the arms and legs and uh, the places where we actually have plenty of muscles, so I guess you can understand a tumour forming in that location. And then there's a group of sites where they occur which we'll just call other, and these include tumours in the abdomen, tumours in the chest, tumours in all sorts of places, and really rhabdomyosarcomas can occur in all sorts of places, and uh, the more common ones are the ones that I've listed above. And so how does a child turn up with a rhabdomyosarcoma? Well, uh, I guess a common presentation would just be with a lump, a mass. The parents say, I can feel this lump here on the child's leg or face, or the lump might be causing some sort of problem like pushing the eyeball forward or causing pain, pain in the ear, pain in the neck, pain in the abdomen, pain in the bone, all sorts of explanations for getting pain from a lump. The lump might cause other problems. So a a lump at the bottom of the bladder might stop the urine from getting out and so the child may present with difficulty passing urine or even complete urinary obstruction eventually. The tumour might bleed. There might be bleeding uh, from the vagina or into the urine for instance as as a presenting feature of a rhabdomyosarcoma. So there's a variety of uh, ways that a rhabdomyosarcoma can present according to its location and what it's pressing on and whether it's uh, a location that you can see from the outside of the body or not. How common is rhabdomyosarcoma? Well, remember I said that about 1 in 600 children will get cancer between birth and the age of about 15 years. About 5% or 4% of those cancers are rhabdomyosarcoma. So it's a less common form of cancer for children compared to, say, acute leukaemia or the brain tumours. But if you're a paediatric oncologist like me, it's not such a particularly rare tumour uh, for us to be dealing with. We, it's a tumour type that uh, we have well-established protocols and familiarity with treating. If you're a family doctor or a general practitioner, it's a very rare tumour, but if you're a paediatric oncologist, it's, it's a common enough tumour that we've, we've all seen many such children with rhabdomyosarcoma. So about 4 or 5% of the 1 in 600 children with cancer uh, have rhabdomyosarcoma. 70% of the time, 
children with rhabdomyosarcoma are aged less than 10 years. So the real peaks of age for the onset of a rhabdomyosarcoma are sort of in that preschool two to five year group and then there's a second peak in adolescence. Okay, now it gets even more complicated because there's different types of rhabdomyosarcoma. And when I say different types here, I'm talking about when the pathologist looks at it with the microscope, looks at the biopsy, can say it's a rhabdomyosarcoma, then they go on to say, yes, but what type of rhabdomyosarcoma? And I guess for now we'll talk about four main types of rhabdomyosarcoma. The most common one is called embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma. Or if, if you're in America, they say embryonal, embryonal, embryonal. It sounds like it, you know, the name suggests to you, doesn't it, that it came on as an embryo before the child was born. Well, that's not what it means. Embryonal is more a pathologist's term that they've got for some complicated reason. They always have complicated terminology, pathologists. Less common is one called an alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma. Alveolar, A-L-V-E-O-L-A-R, rhabdomyosarcoma. This one's less common than embryonal and generally is a less favourable form of rhabdomyosarcoma, meaning it's, it's harder to cure. It needs stronger treatment. Alveolar. Okay, now to explain that word alveolar, well, in your lung are these little tiny air sacs called the alveoli. Okay, that's where your air goes when you breathe. All the air goes to the alveoli and there it merges into the bloodstream and then gets pumped into the rest of the body. So they're the alveoli. Now an alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma was called that because when they saw them, a number of them at first looked like they had that same appearance of the air sacs of the lung. So it just reminded pathologists of the lung, and so they called it an alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma. But it's really got nothing to do with the lung. Uh, In particular, it just reminded the pathologists of what lung looks like under a microscope. So that's the alveolar one. Uh, Less common is the botryoid rhabdomyosarcoma. Botryoid, B-O-T-R-Y-O-I-D. Botryoid means... It looks like a bunch of grapes, and that's because it does look like a bunch of grapes. And, you know, the commonest one here is a vaginal botryoid tumour. It's uh, less common, but it actually is one of the more favourable forms of rhabdomyosarcoma. And then there's another one called pleomorphic, which is a pathologist term that's hard to get your head around. So they're the four main types. The commonest one is embryonal or embryonal. Second most common is alveolar. Then there's the botryoid and the pleomorphic, which are both less common. Now, all of those forms of rhabdomyosarcoma were uh, defined and identified by pathologists looking at tumour biopsies with a microscope. In uh, the last couple of decades, we've also added various molecular tests, you know, tests on the DNA of the tumour that can uh, identify one type of tumour versus another. And this is all very complicated and constantly new information's coming to hand. But the key one to know about is that the alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, for a long time we've known that it had this um, funny abnormality in the tumour cells where chromosome 2 and chromosome 13 have actually swapped over some bits of each other. That's called a translocation. It's something we see in cancers where something goes wrong and chromosomes swap bits with each other. And the The cytogenetics labs can look at tumour cells and study them and identify this translocation between chromosomes 2 and 13. Now, that's the classic one. There's other other variations on the 2-13 translocation. Anyway, if you look at, well, what's going on in that translocation, turns out that there's a gene called PAX, P-A-X, and a gene called FOXO1, F-O-X-O-1. And when these chromosomes get stuck to each other in the wrong way, you end up with this PAX gene next to the FOXO gene. So it's called a PAX-FOXO fusion. Very clever people who understand all the molecular biology uh, study this, commit their lives to understanding this PAX-FOXO 
gene fusion and how it leads to the formation of cancer and whether one day it'll give us a way to treat the cancer uh, in some very clever way. So the main thing to know about here is that when pathologists are struggling to say, well, is it a rhabdomyosarcoma or isn't it? Or which form of rhabdomyosarcoma is it in particular? Well, if they can run these particular tests and find the 213 translocation or find this Pax-Foxo gene fusion with the DNA tests, well, that's the thing that can really clarify in particular uh, what sort of rhabdomyosarcoma they're dealing with. And these tests of uh, chromosomes and DNA are in particular most useful for identifying and confirming that alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma that I mentioned earlier. So... After we've diagnosed the tumour and we know what location it's at and we know which subtype of rhabdomyosarcoma it is, the next thing we need to know is whether the tumour has spread to elsewhere in the body away from the main site where the tumour started. The main site where a tumour starts is called the primary site. Well, We, we want to know if the tumour has spread to elsewhere in the body and in particular a rhabdomyosarcoma can spread to the local lymph glands. Lymph glands are those little lumps that you get up in your neck when you have tonsillitis, the lymph glands. Well, tumours can spread to lymph glands as well and, uh, and then start growing at those locations. And tumours can spread to the local lymph glands. So imagine a tumour in the arm, then the local lymph glands would be the lymph glands in the armpit. Or tumours can spread to distant lymph nodes. Uh, for instance, a tumour in the arm, if it's spread to a lymph gland in the left groin or high up in the left neck, for instance, then you might consider that to be a distant spread of tumour. And they have different implications for how you would treat them and what's the level of seriousness and the difficulty to cure the cancer. So we want to know if the tumour has spread to lymph nodes, but we also want to know if the tumour has spread to the lungs, has it spread to the bones or the bone marrow, and has it spread anywhere else. So the main places a rhabdomyosarcoma spreads to, if it does spread, is to the lymph nodes, either the local ones or the distant ones, to the lungs, to the bones, and the bone marrow. They're the typical places. Now, most rhabdomyosarcomas stay localised, but a sizable minority, I think maybe it's 15 or 20%, have what you call metastatic disease. Metastatic means disease that's spread somewhere else in the body distant from the primary site. And metastatic disease is a bad thing. It always makes the tumour more difficult to cure, makes it more serious. So how do we go looking for metastatic disease? First off, we examine the child and look for any uh, enlarged lymph glands uh, elsewhere in the body away from the tumour, feel the liver, feel the spleen, listen to the lungs, all of those things. And then we get on with doing tests. So we do some scans. Uh, to look at the lungs, we usually do a CT scan of the chest. That's uh, one of those scans, you know, where you slide into a bit of a tunnel-like thing and it takes images and gives you pictures that look like slices through the lungs. And that's to look for any nodules in the lungs. We may do an MRI scan of certain parts of the body. Not usually of the lungs, by the way. MRI isn't usually that good to look for nodules in the lungs. MRI is, is quite good for looking at certain other parts of the body. So we do a CT or an MRI scan. The other type of scans we do are what you call nuclear medicine scans. So these are those ones where the child has an injection of some sort of radioactive isotope and then a period of time, an hour or two or three later, a special camera is uh, placed over the child to look for any areas of the body that have taken up this radioactive tracer and that would be a site where the tumour may have spread to. So the uh, older-fashioned technology is called a bone scan, so an injection of the bone tracer, and then an hour or two later, camera over the whole body to look whether any of the bones are taking up the tracer in a way that makes you think that there's tumour spread to the bones. A more modern technique is something called a PET scan. PET scan is uh, positron emission tomography, 
and it's much more high-tech. Again, it's a radioactive form of glucose that's injected this time, and then uh, we know that tumours take up glucose more actively than a lot of other tissues. So if we find areas of the body taking up the glucose more than they should, it makes us think there may be tumour that's spread to that location. So that's called a PET scan. Not everyone has access to PET scanners. Not every hospital has one. It's pretty high-tech and and new in its application. And in fact, we're still learning how best to use PET scan in rhabdomyosarcoma, how to use it to diagnose the presence of metastatic disease, and then how to diagnose the response to treatment later on. Another test that we usually do in rhabdomyosarcoma is a bone marrow biopsy. This is usually done under anaesthetic in our hands because it's very painful, but it's basically a needle into the back of the pelvis bone and take out a sample of the bone marrow from each side, send it to the pathologist, and then they can look at it and see whether there are tumour cells in the bone marrow. So we've always done that. There's some evidence coming out now that says that in the very small tumours with no evidence of spread anywhere, the chances of being positive on the bone marrow test are really very low and you might not need to do it. But as a general rule, we still do it and I think most units would still do it. The other thing that might be done, if the tumour is in a particular location that has access to brain, tumours at certain locations in the head and neck can be close to the skull bone and so if the tumour was to grow through the skull bone it could end up in that fluid that surrounds the brain. It's called the cerebrospinal fluid. So for certain tumour locations we would do a lumbar puncture and that's a, a needle low in the back. It's a bit like having an epidural when you're having a baby except the needle's pushed in an extra millimetre or two until it hits the spinal fluid. Then we can collect some spinal fluid send it to the pathologists, they can centrifuge it and look for any sign of any tumour cells that are in the spinal fluid because that would be a serious development and would require some modification to treatment as well. And the final thing that needs to be done in some patients to work out whether the tumour has spread is to actually surgically sample the lymph nodes. Remember how I talked about how tumours can spread to lymph nodes? You may be able to detect that just by examining the patient and feeling those lymph nodes to see if they are enlarged and hard and whether they have tumour in them. You may be able to detect lymph node involvement by looking at the scans. You may see enlarged lymph nodes on the CT scan or the MRI scan or on the PET scan. And all of these things may either prove that there's tumour in the lymph nodes or else make you seriously suspect that there's tumour in the lymph nodes and make you biopsy them to make sure one way or another. There's two particular locations for rhabdomyosarcoma where we would surgically sample the lymph nodes even if they appeared normal on examination and normal on scans. And the particular first group are patients with rhabdomyosarcoma of the extremity. So we're talking about tumours of the limb, the arm, the forearm, the hand, the leg, the foot. They're the extremities. Tumours in those locations in the American trials would routinely have an operation to surgically sample the lymph nodes that are draining that region of the body. So for instance, a tumour in the thigh would normally drain to the lymph nodes in the groin. And so we would ask a surgeon to take out some of the lymph nodes from the groin and send them to the pathologist to see whether they have microscopic amounts of tumour in them. And then that would be important as we define our treatment later on. Now, it's not uh, what you call a radical lymph node dissection. That was, that's a procedure that you may hear about if you read about melanoma, for instance, where every lymph node in the region gets taken out and sent for analysis. In staging rhabdomyosarcoma, it's not as radical a procedure as that. They're quite radical operations and a bit mutilating. Uh, they are procedures to sample the lymph nodes. Now, If possible, and if it's available, a particular strategy might be used by the surgeon called sentinel lymph node mapping. Sentinel lymph node mapping did evolve out of melanoma treatment, actually. What that involves is 
putting an injection of one of these radioactive traces into the region where the tumour is. Now that radioactive tracer will spread up to the lymph nodes, but what it'll do is it'll allow the surgeon to identify which lymph node comes from the region of the tumour. See, if you've got a tumour in the thigh, there's a bunch of lymph nodes in the groin. Do you want to take them all out? Or do you want to take out the ones that are particularly draining that region of the thigh where the tumour is located? That's where the sentinel lymph node mapping comes in. So an injection of tracer into the region of the tumour, and then the surgeon will go to operate on the groin, for instance, and we'll have a, a little mini Geiger counter device that looks at the lymph nodes, and we can identify which of the lymph nodes has taken up that radioactive tracer. That doesn't mean there's cancer in it. That's just telling you that's the lymph node to take out and then send that one to the pathology. And certain other lymph nodes that haven't taken up the tracer are not draining the region of interest, and so you can leave them alone. So sentinel lymph node mapping is to help the surgeon remove the right lymph nodes so that they can be sent to the pathologist to look to see if the tumour has spread into them. Okay, so, and that's a routine in the US studies for extremity rhabdomyosarcoma. I'm not sure how routine it is in, in the European studies. Now, the other area where you may sample lymph nodes, even though they are normal on the scans, is in a particular tumour called a paratesticular rhabdomyosarcoma. So this is a tumour that arises next to the testicle. And basically these patients present with a lump in the testicle or one big, huge, large testicle. And usually have an operation where the testicle is removed and then we find that it's rhabdomyosarcoma. So a paratesticular rhabdomyosarcoma. It's actually a group of patients with a relatively good outlook compared to some other rhabdomyosarcomas. Now, the problem with the paratesticular rhabdomyosarcoma, though, is that it may spread to the lymph nodes. But it doesn't spread to the lymph nodes in the groins, even though that's right nearby to the testicle. It actually spreads to lymph nodes that are inside the abdomen. And they're ones that it's harder to feel, of course, because they're right at the back of the abdomen. They need a surgical approach if you're going to sample them. Now, a lot of work has been done on which patients need to have this lymph node sampling performed because it's a big deal to sample these lymph nodes. The evidence from the US trials has mostly supported going in to sample those lymph nodes in patients with a paratesticular rhabdomyosarcoma over the age of 10. Now, if a PET scan shows that they're obviously wildly hot and clearly involved with cancer, there may not be any need to sample them. But in the patient whose scans are clear, then the US groups would mostly recommend that a surgeon go in and sample the lymph nodes. Now, it's a very specific technique that's used because these lymph nodes are located in a very tricky location in the body. And in particular, there's some very important nerves surrounding the lymph nodes. And some of those nerves in particular are important to sexual function later in life, to male sexual function. So we don't want the surgeon just to go in there and clear out every lymph node in sight because that's likely to lead to damage to those nerves and that's very undesirable. So a very specific technique has been developed and described for the US groups. It's called selective ipsilateral retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. And I'll spare you all of the details of that, but it's a, a very specific technique to be used and is designed to sample the right nodes and not to cause nerve damage, hopefully. Okay, so now we should have all our facts together. We should know where the tumour is, what type of tumour it is, how big it is, whether it is spread to the local lymph nodes, whether it's invasive at the local level, meaning is it just a nice round lump or has it invaded into the surrounding tissues? And we should know whether the tumour has spread elsewhere in the body, metastatic disease. Has it spread to the lungs or the bones or the bone marrow? 
So now we're in a position to put it all together and do what we call risk stratification. And risk stratification is all about determining how serious is this cancer. They're all serious, but uh, there are ones that are much more serious and ones which are more predictably going to be cured with chemotherapy and surgery or radiotherapy. So it's all about determining the low-risk patients, the intermediate-risk patients, and the high-risk patients. And you have to put all of this data together to do that. Okay, now how do we do that? Now I need to tell you about the, the big research organisations that have conducted all the research in rhabdomyosarcoma. The American group that conducted trials across multiple hospitals in rhabdomyosarcoma were called the IRS, the Intergroup Rhabdomyosarcoma Study Group, IRS. They're Americans. The equivalent organisation in Europe is called CIOP, S-I-O-P. I think it's a Société Internationale Oncologie Pédiatrique. That's in French, in case you didn't notice my accent. So that's CIOP. Now, they're the big group now conducting trials in rhabdomyosarcoma. But in years past, they were at one time called MMT. They were the Malignant Mesenchymal Tumors Group. Anyway, CIOP is the, the main big group in Europe now. But then there are other big groups of, at the national level in Europe, German group, French group, etc., but these days, the national groups more often get together into a big, huge international group so that we'll have enough patients to conduct a research trial and work out a better treatment if we can identify one. The next thing that happened was the IRS, the US group, stopped existing as a separate group but joined into the Children's Oncology Group. COG. That's the big US research group that does research trials in pediatric cancer. Most of the big pediatric centres in the United States and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and some other places are member institutions of COG. Unfortunately, the Europeans and the Americans have different ways of classifying the tumours, so it all gets very complicated. Let's start with the American approach. That's the IRS approach, or nowadays you would call it the COG approach. So their approach was to look at the patient after they'd had their initial operation performed. So some patients had had a biopsy performed, so a surgeon had just taken a little piece of tumour out and the tumour was too big to remove, for instance. Other times the surgeon may have taken out the tumour completely or tried to take out the tumour completely. But whatever the surgeon had done, the COG approach is to look at the patient after an initial surgical procedure was performed and then to look at the tumour, look at how much tumour is left behind, how invasive it is and whether it is spread elsewhere in the body. And then they would come up with something called a grouping. So the patient could be in group 1, group 2, group 3 or group 4. Now group 1 were those patients where the surgeon had completely removed the tumour, that the pathologist looked at the tumour and said, yes, you seem to have got the whole tumour out and the edges are all clear of tumour so you've completely removed it and there's no spread elsewhere in the body. That was a group 1 tumour. The group 4 tumour was the tumour that had spread to distant sites in the body. So maybe it spread to the lungs or the bones or the bone marrow. And that was the worst one. And then in between were groups 2 and group 3. And in group 2, the tumour was removed as far as the naked eye could tell, but that we knew there was microscopic disease left at the primary site. And in group 3, that's usually the patient who's had a biopsy only and has a lump of tumour left at the primary site, but no spread to distant sites. So that's groups one to four in the IRS studies, uh, but nowadays they're the COG studies of North America. The next thing that happens within the US system is that they identify a stage for the patient. So we've already got a group for the patient that's based on how we did things from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and so on, the, the groupings I just told you. 
But now they develop a stage for the patient. You know, you talk about cancers often stage one, two, three, four, uh, and so on. Well, now we have to have a stage for the patient. And in rhabdomyosarcoma, it's incredibly complicated because the stage includes all sorts of different variables. In particular, the stage includes the site of the tumour. So where is the tumour located? And there are locations for tumour that we know are more favourable and ones that are less favourable. So if it's in the orbit, for instance, behind the eyeball, that's a favourable location for a tumour and leads to a stage one, if everything else is good. Whereas there are other locations where we call it stage three, even though that doesn't mean it's spread anywhere worse in particular than the orbit one. It's just that it's a worse location for a tumour. So that affects the stage. Also, to give a tumour a stage, you have to look at the size of the tumour. Is it more or less than five centimetres? We have to look at whether it's invasive. So is it neatly defined and not obviously infiltrating into the surrounding tissues? Or is it obviously invading into surrounding tissues? Is it invading into the surrounding uh, muscles or bladder or bone or anything like that? That's the invasiveness of the tumour. We have to look at the lymph nodes. Has it spread to the lymph nodes in the local region or more distantly? And is there any spread to distant locations? If there is spread to the lungs or the bone or bone marrow away from the tumour, then that always has the patient ending up as stage four, so group four, stage four. But uh, in the absence of spread elsewhere, all of those things have to be put together in this complex algorithm to look at the side of the tumour, the size of the tumour, the invasiveness, the lymph nodes, etc. And then you can come up with a stage. So now we've got a patient and with their tumour they have a group and a stage and armed with all of that we can allocate the patient into a low risk group, an intermediate risk group and a high risk group factoring in whether it's embryonal or alveolar as well, we can end up with a risk allocation. Now, the Europeans have uh, different systems for defining groups and stages, and they also have complicated tables that incorporate the site of the tumour and the size of the tumour and the lymph nodes and the stage and alveolar or embryonal and metastatic or not, and come up with a risk stratification and a, a way to define treatment based on all of these elaborate tables of pre-surgical and post-surgical characteristics of the patient's tumour. So in any event, by now the Americans and the Europeans have performed a risk stratification and now it's time to develop a treatment plan for rhabdomyosarcoma. Now a small group of patients with rhabdomyosarcoma will have surgery as the first step to remove the tumour. Sometimes that's done because nobody knew that the particular tumour was a rhabdomyosarcoma. For instance, they might have thought it was a lipoma or something that's not cancer at all, and the surgeon went and removed it. The unfortunate thing with that situation is that normally they haven't removed it as a radical operation with a good wide cuff of normal tissue around it, and uh, so it wouldn't be a definitive cancer operation. But other times they think it's a cancer and so they have performed a radical removal of the tumour. The general principle in rhabdomyosarcoma would be to avoid doing a a big operation at the start to remove the tumour unless it could be done without damaging normal tissues too much. So any sort of surgery that would be uh, mutilating or damage normal tissues or normal structures would normally be avoided at the start in treating rhabdomyosarcoma. And so a a radical resection would only be performed ideally in the situation where the tumour can be removed with a, a good cuff of normal tissue around it but without damaging normal tissues too much. And that's only a small proportion of the patients. And the reason why you don't want to do a more mutilating operation at the start is because rhabdomyosarcomas are normally very responsive to chemotherapy drugs. Cancer chemotherapy drugs will very often make rhabdomyosarcomas shrink. They'll get smaller. And then options for surgery may change and may may become more readily performed because the tumor is smaller. 
So we try to avoid radical surgery at the start. So a treatment plan in rhabdomyosarcoma after the initial biopsy and all of the initial staging, etc., would be to start with cancer chemotherapy drugs. And I'll talk about them a bit later on, but they would be given, so the patient would normally have some sort of central line inserted by the surgeon. This is instead of a drip in the back of your hand, it's a surgically implanted line that can stay in for weeks and weeks and months and months. And basically every child with chemotherapy to be given ends up with a central line. Well, almost every every child. So we would give these chemotherapy drugs and for instance, they might be given every three weeks. We might give three drugs every three weeks for a period. But eventually, uh, we would also conduct what's called local therapy. Local therapy is different to chemotherapy. Chemotherapy treats the whole body. Even with a localized tumor, we end up treating the whole body. But local therapy is something directed just at the site of the tumor. And local therapy means either surgery to remove the tumour or radiotherapy to treat the tumour. They're what you call the local therapy options. And so it'll be either surgery or radiotherapy or both would be used as local therapy. Now, what is the right timing for local therapy is always a question. For a long time in the US trials, local therapy was routinely given at week 12, for instance. In a more recent trial, the local therapy was given earlier in the piece at week 4. These are all uh, topics of some complexity and uh, ongoing research, and I don't want to lock in a right answer for now. There are times when local therapy should be delivered right at the very start of treatment. I told you about the small tumour that can be readily cut out uh, without causing any damage to normal tissues. Well, that's a local therapy that's performed at diagnosis. But there's a couple of other situations where you might perform a local therapy right at the very start. One would be if the tumour was compressing some vital organ structure in a dangerous way then that might be a reason to give radiation therapy right at the very start. For instance, a tumour that somehow was compressing the spinal cord or compressing the airway and making it difficult to breathe, these are all emergency situations where you would look at an option for local therapy. You might not necessarily do it. It may be that with chemotherapy you can expect enough of a response to avoid an emergency operation or emergency radiotherapy, but it would be a consideration that would come up. You would ask the question, should we operate now and decompress the spinal cord? Should we give radiotherapy to the spinal cord? These things come up for discussion. The other one where radiotherapy has been given very early in treatment has been in a particular group of patients with rhabdomyosarcoma in the head and neck region where the tumour was what you call a parameningeal tumour. Now the meninges are the lining of the brain. The brain has this sort of leather coating called the dura, the dura, and that's also called the meninges. There are certain tumours in the head and neck region which have a particular tendency to involve the meninges. So they're called paramenangeal rhabdomyosarcomas. And we have tables that list all the specific sites with a particular risk of involving the meninges. Some of these tumours don't just involve the meninges, but actually grow inside the skull and push on the meninges and bulge the leather coating of the brain towards the brain. They may even get through the meninges and into the brain. This is something that is diagnosed with an MRI scan and a PET scan can also help. But mostly it's the MRI scan that tells you if the tumour is a paramenangeal tumour with intracranial extension, ICE. Now that's a particular group where historically uh, radiotherapy was given at week one. I say historically because radiotherapy techniques have become more and more sophisticated and Those radiotherapy techniques need longer to plan and map out the tumour, etc. 
And so there is a bit of a move afoot to delay that radiotherapy by a few weeks. But historically, that was a group who got their local therapy very early in the piece, right at the start of chemotherapy. That's the patient with the paramenangeal tumour in the head and neck region with intracranial extension of the tumour, diagnosed on the MRI scan. But otherwise, local therapy is normally given after a period of chemotherapy. So the drugs are given for a period of time, whether it's 12 weeks or 4 weeks or 16 weeks, depends then normally scans would be performed again to see whether the tumour has gotten smaller, whether the PET scan shows that the tumour is less active. And after all of that, then we would normally embark on some form of local therapy. Like I said, the local therapy could be radiotherapy, so radiation given to the area of the tumour. I'll do a whole separate podcast on radiation, but it's a whole separate specialty of medicine and radiation oncologists Uh, will map out where the tumour is exactly and design a radiation beam that's given a bit like an X-ray, really, but it's a very sophisticated X-ray, very targeted to the area of the tumour and uh, obviously much higher energy beam than a normal X-ray. And that's uh, something that's normally given as a, a radiotherapy treatment every day for four, five, six weeks, for instance. That's called a course of radiation therapy. Another option for local therapy might be to ask the surgeon to operate. So uh, if the tumour wasn't able to be removed at the time of the original diagnosis, it may be that with chemotherapy, the tumour can now be removed. And that's called a second-look operation. So uh, now the tumour might be able to be removed and then go on to further chemotherapy. Now, that sounds good, but um, it's not always been automatically a routine, for instance, in the US trials. Normally, tumours that were not able to be removed at diagnosis, when they came to have their local therapy, there was more of a bias towards giving radiation therapy. And part of the reason for that, I suppose, is that a surgeon might remove what's left of the lump, but you sort of need to treat the edges of where the tumour ever got to in the first place if you know what I mean. And so just removing what's left of the lump isn't necessarily also treating the wider surrounding tissues the way that a radiation therapy treatment can. One use for this second look operation to remove the tumour after chemotherapy has been to see whether, well, maybe if we take out most of the tumour, we'll still give radiotherapy, but maybe we'll be able to give a lower dose of radiotherapy. You know, they measure radiotherapy in doses. When you add up the six weeks of treatment, how many grey, that's the unit for radiation, how many grey was given? And did we have to give 50 grey or 36 grey, for instance? And we like to use lower radiation doses because then we're uh, not damaging the surrounding normal tissues as much. But we first and foremost want to cure the cancer. So second-look operation has been looked at as a way to reduce the radiotherapy dose and in some circumstances to avoid using radiotherapy at all. But it's not as simple as it sounds and there's a whole lot of principles to be developed and considered. The European group, uh, MMT, that I mentioned before, they conducted some trials to look at whether patients could avoid having radiotherapy at all so have no local therapy. So they looked at giving chemotherapy and then seeing if after, say, 12 weeks, I think it was, or maybe it was 20 weeks, if the tumour went away completely, so you couldn't see it at all on the scan, then could you possibly avoid local therapy at all? Don't go in and remove what's left of the tumour and don't go and give radiotherapy to the region of the tumour. So that was a very attractive strategy because if it worked, then... Uh, you would avoid the use of radiotherapy. Now, the results from those studies show that there was a higher risk of the tumour growing back. Even in the patient where the scans became pretty well normal and the PET scan became pretty well normal, so we're talking about what's called a complete response where you really can't see any sign of the tumour, if you don't give radiotherapy to those patients there is a slightly higher risk of the cancer growing back, even though you're continuing with the chemotherapy. 
And then if that happens, well, that's the worst possible thing. Then you have to start treatment all over again, give chemotherapy all over again, give radiotherapy this time, presumably, and the, the prospects for curing that sort of patient are not as good. So it's, it's been looked at and it's been tried, and I don't think you could say that it's universally applicable, that strategy of avoiding radiotherapy if there's a complete response. It would be very much selected patients where you could routinely apply that strategy even though it's a very attractive one because it would be good to avoid the use of radiotherapy. Anyway, so chemotherapy, then local therapy, and then there would normally be a further period of chemotherapy that's given over some months to follow. I should mention in particular the very young children. So children, say one-year-old, two-year-old, the very young children with rhabdomyosarcoma, These are patients where radiotherapy would be particularly damaging. The problem with radiotherapy is that the radiation hits the normal tissues surrounding the tumour, and then those normal tissues may not grow properly ever again. So if we have to irradiate bladder prostate region in a very small child, well, the bladder may not grow properly ever again, and the child will be left with a very small bladder. Other tissues that might be involved, might, for instance, uh, the face might be involved with some tumours. Wherever the tumour is, the surrounding normal tissues will be damaged by the radiotherapy, generally, and that's particularly undesirable under the age of about two. So in those patients, we uh, very much use individualised local control considerations. We very much look at deviating from what might have been the normal thing in a 10-year-old, but look more at what can we do here given the particular young age. And another group to consider special local control options with are the patients with metastatic disease. So patients who have spread of their disease to the local lymph nodes or to distant sites like the lungs or bones or distant lymph nodes, as well as giving chemotherapy and as well as giving local control to the primary tumour, it may be that local control to the metastatic sites is needed. For instance, it may be that radiotherapy should be given to both lungs in patients who have rhabdomyosarcoma that is spread to the lungs. Or it may be that certain bony sites can have radiotherapy just to that particular spot of bone or to a particular lymph node region. And those decisions are made based partly on, well, what sort of response occurred with chemotherapy? Did everything resolve with chemotherapy? How many of these sites are there? How old is the child? What is the risk of giving treatment to those sites? There's a whole lot of considerations to go through, but some sort of radiotherapy to metastatic sites may also be under consideration. The local control measures like radiotherapy to metastatic sites might be given later in treatment. It might be given at week 20, for instance. These things vary from uh, different protocol to different protocol, depending on priorities for getting the chemotherapy drugs in and for managing the primary site and all sorts of other considerations. So I wouldn't say there's any set fixed number of weeks at which you should treat metastatic sites with radiotherapy. In any event, after all of the local control is given to the primary site, further chemotherapy is given, and the total duration of the protocol will normally vary according to the risk group that the patient has been allocated. So typically we have shorter periods of treatment for patients who have low-risk tumours and longer periods of treatment for patients with high-risk tumours. But the total duration of treatment typically would be somewhere between 6 and 12 months, uh, closer to 12 months for the intermediate and high-risk patients and maybe something closer to 6 months for patients with low-risk disease. What drugs are given to patients with rhabdomyosarcoma? Again, this is all very complicated as well, uh, but I can say some general comments. I think we can say that all patients with rhabdomyosarcoma would receive vincristine. Just about all would receive actinomycin D. Both of these drugs are given through the central line 
usually over one to five minutes, a quick little infusion of drug. The vincristine is one of the drugs that will make the hair fall out and uh, can cause constipation, can cause problems with the nerves, you know, pins and needles in the hands and feet, and a bit of numbness in the hands and feet, usually a temporary problem, can cause some crampy abdominal pains. Actinomycin D also is an offending drug for making the hair fall out and it can cause lowering of blood counts and rarely causes this severe liver problem, particularly in very young children. But that's a whole separate discussion. I'll have other podcasts that go over all of these drugs one by one in all sorts of detail. Then many patients would receive treatment with cyclophosphamide in the United States or ifosfamide in Europe. Uh, similar drugs there both given through the central line and then usually followed with somewhere between 6 and 24 hours of fluid to protect the urinary bladder from the drug. As the drug's leaving the body, it can burn the urinary bladder. So those drugs normally require a period of intravenous fluid with them. So they're the sort of main three drugs for the US, that VAC combination, vincristine, actinomycin and cyclophosphamide. And in Europe, it would be IVA, I-V-A, iphosphamide, vincristine, actinomycin. The vincristine and the actinomycin would be given to pretty much all patients with rhabdomyosarcoma. The cyclophosphamide and the iphosphamide, most patients would get one or the other, and it's a subject of ongoing research trying to establish, well, how much of these particular drugs do we need? So we like to avoid using cyclophosphamide and iphosphamide if we can, because they have some more severe side effects and they can cause impaired fertility. So we try to limit the amount of those two drugs that are used. On the other hand, our research studies have shown them to be very active drugs against rhabdomyosarcoma and very important to curing rhabdomyosarcoma. So it's a delicate balance always to be struck how much cyclophosphamide or iphosphamide should be used. And the choice of those drugs is based on huge, great research clinical trials that have been conducted to guide us whether to use them and how much. There's some other drugs that are used in rhabdomyosarcoma sometimes, but not always. There's a drug called doxorubicin or adriamycin. This is a drug that's used a lot in treating sarcomas elsewhere in oncology, so Ewing sarcoma, osteosarcoma, certain other sarcomas. It's been looked at in rhabdomyosarcoma a lot. It's certainly an active drug against rhabdomyosarcoma, but the problem has been to work out exactly which patients need to have doxorubicin and which ones don't. There are some patients where just the three-drug VAC combination that I mentioned will be cured and where adding doxorubicin doesn't improve the chances of being cured. But then there are other patients who seem to benefit from the addition of doxorubicin to the chemotherapy regimen. So that's a you know an active problem to discuss whether we should be using doxorubicin or not. The reason we agonize so much over the use of doxorubicin is because it has one particular long-term side effect which is undesirable and that's that it can weaken the muscle of the heart. Now, this is a problem that can develop many years after treatment with doxorubicin. It might be 10 or 20 or 30 years later, and we try to limit the cumulative amount of doxorubicin. If you add up all the doses, we try to stay below a certain level of doxorubicin exposure, but even even with those doses, we are learning that we can see heart problems decades later. So it's an important question whether to give doxorubicin or not, and it's a tough one. There's another drug out there called irinotecan, I-R-I-N-O-T-E-C-A-N. And that's only recently been studied in rhabdomyosarcoma as, as a drug you could add into the mix. We haven't found that it improves the chances to cure rhabdomyosarcoma, but there is a little bit of evidence out there now that suggests maybe you can use it and replace some of the cyclophosphamide with irinotecan in selected patients. Not in every patient with rhabdomyosarcoma, but just in certain ones. There's a drug called etoposide, E-T-O-P-O-S-I-D-E, etoposide. It's active against rhabdomyosarcoma. Its place in the treatment isn't as locked in as the VAC combo or the IVA combo, but it's a drug that sometimes is used. And of course, there's always 
other drugs under evaluation. There are certain patients with rhabdomyosarcoma where the chances to cure the disease are not good, particularly I'm talking about the patients with metastatic rhabdomyosarcoma of the alveolar type, for instance. Those patients do not have a good prognosis, and so we are always looking for a new drug to add to the treatment and conducting research trials trying to improve the outlook. So most of the time, we would hope we could have a research trial open to treat patients with rhabdomyosarcoma to try to improve on the existing therapy. And those trials are being conducted by the US Children's Oncology Group, by the European CEOP Group, and by other groups. And this is how we can evaluate new drugs, evaluate new techniques for radiotherapy, get together and study the biology of the tumour, get together and study new forms of scans, new PET scans, new MRI techniques, new surgical techniques. Uh, Clinical trials are very important in rhabdomyosarcoma, and it's through the conduct of them over these decades that we've got to where we are now. But much needs to be done. And this brings me to the question of the prognosis for rhabdomyosarcoma. The prognosis. What are the chances to cure a child with rhabdomyosarcoma? Now, this is a very complex question. It's very difficult to just summarise, and so I don't plan to summarise it or break down the treatment outcomes for every specific subset of patient. What I can say is that the majority of patients with rhabdomyosarcoma are cured of their disease permanently. With the use of chemotherapy and some sort of local control modality, most patients will be cured. However, there are patients who have a poor outlook. There are patients where the chances to be cured are not good. And I'm particularly talking now about patients with metastatic disease, disease that is spread to the lungs and the bones and the bone marrow. Now, some of these can be cured. There are patients with metastatic disease who have a slightly better chance to be cured. So children who are under the age of 10 and whose tumour is of the embryonal type and where it's only spread to the lungs and not the bones or bone marrow, they have a better chance. But otherwise, patients with metastatic disease have a poor outlook where only a minority of such patients can be cured of their disease, even with our chemotherapy and our radiotherapy and our surgery and everything we throw at it. I'm not saying none of them are cured. I'm saying a minority are cured. And that's the group where we particularly need something new in the way of a novel treatment, some new treatment, some new drug, some new way to treat them. So again, the majority of patients are cured, particularly the patients with embryonal or botryoid histology and particularly the patients whose tumour is localised. But there are patients where we can tell right from the outset that the outlook is poor and that they have only a minority chance to be cured. The next thing to talk about is the long-term side effects of treatment. And I won't talk about that too much. I'll do a whole series of podcasts later on on the long-term side effects of treatment. But from the drugs, we particularly worry when we have to use cyclophosphamide or iphosphamide because they can impair fertility particularly in boys and particularly in boys who are in their uh, teenage pubertal years they're at greater risk and uh, infertility is not universal but it's always a great risk iphosphamide and cyclophosphamide have a slightly increased risk of uh, getting leukemia later in life so a second malignancy this is only a a small increased risk but it is very definitely a risk and hence our research trials to try to limit those drugs. There are long-term side effects from the radiation therapy and that's a long and complex discussion too but it depends on what age the child is and what particular area of the body is needing to be irradiated. So I think I'll stop there. I'll just summarize again very quickly. So remember that rhabdomyosarcoma is a tumour of some sort of muscle stem cell. But it's not a tumour that only arises in muscles. It arises in all sorts of parts of the body, including the head and neck, the bladder, prostate, vagina, uterus, and 
the muscles of the extremities. It's a tumour that has a complicated system for defining what stage is the tumour and what group is the tumour and a comprehensive battery of scans and sometimes lymph node sampling is needed to work out what stage of the disease the patient has. Treatment is with chemotherapy and usually some form of local therapy, whether it's radiotherapy or surgery or a combination of the two. The majority of patients are cured of rhabdomyosarcoma, but there are high-risk groups where the outlook is poor, and these are the group where we need some sort of new treatment to be developed. Well, thank you for listening in to this episode of Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. I'll uh, address many of the specifics from this podcast in subsequent podcasts. There'll be discussions of drugs one at a time, discussions of long-term side effects, discussions about scans, and about radiotherapy to come. Bye now.